No good deed goes unpunished. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before. A phrase we often say or maybe hear when someone does something good but then has to experience something bad because of the good that they do. Good, no good deed goes unpunished. And in a lot of U.S. states, we even have laws that we have created to try to protect people that do good. Right? They're called Good Samaritan Laws, where if a normal everyday civilian that's not in a, a working profession sees someone in danger and steps in to try to help them as a volunteer, that person that did the good can't be sued or caused harm because they tried to, to help that person. For example, if an accountant's driving down the road and he sees a car catching on fire and he jumps out of the car and he pulls the person from the car as a volunteer but he accidentally sprains their pinky, that accountant can't be sued because he's protected as a good Samaritan. Apparently, because those things, I guess, have happened in the past, I guess. But when Christians do good, do we expect to be protected from harm? When we do good as Christians, do we, accept, do we expect to be exempt from suffering? Meaning if we attend church regularly, we read our Bible every day, we pray all the time, we attend a, a weekly Bible study, we tithe faithfully each week, we serve in doing outreach, or we visit the sick in the hospital. When we do all those good things, do those good things that we do as Christians protect us? from experiencing harm or hardship as believers. We were beginning a section today of Scripture in 1 Peter, where Peter is going to begin a, a series of teachings on suffering, talking to Christians about the suffering that they experience. Peter's just finished a, a section we titled Life in Society. Now he's moving on to describe our life in suffering from chapter 3 verse 13 through chapter 4 verse 19 and what Peter is essentially saying to us today in these five verses that we heard read to us is that a faithful life lived as a Christian leads to slander from non-Christians and it sometimes leads to suffering but those give us an opportunity to give a witness of our faith to others so Peter here, he describes some principles for us in suffering in verses 13 and 14. Then he gives some practices for us in suffering in verses 15 and 16. And lastly, potential, describes the potential of what might happen in that suffering. Essentially what he's saying is that our hope in Christ leads eventually to our witness in Christ. So let's read verses 13 and 14 together as Peter describes these principles in suffering for us. He writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. Now in these two verses, Peter starts with a general principle in verse 13. It's phrased as a question, but he says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? What he essentially is saying there is, Normally you don't suffer when you do good things. Specifically in this context, in the previous paragraphs, Peter has talked about 
when you submit to the government that's under you, when you submit to your boss that you work for, when you submit to your spouse, when you submit to one another in the Christian community, when you do those things that Peter has just described, you usually will not suffer, is what he is saying. Generally, people are not harmed for their kindness. That's the general principle that Peter declares to us. But he gives the exception to the principle there in verse 14 with but. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Here in verse 14, he describes what might happen to people that do good, to Christians that obey and love God and follow God's instructions. This is what might happen. He says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now, Peter's phrase there, that, that statement is placed in what's called the fourth class conditional statement in Greek. See, in English, we have conditional statements that you're aware of. If then are conditional statements that we have. The if is the condition, we call that the protasis, and then the then is the consequent, that's the apotasis. Sorry to bring back traumatic memories of junior high school, but that's our English language and how it works. And in Greek there are four different types of conditional sentences, and this is the fourth class of conditional sentence, which describes something as possible but very improbable something that might happen in the future but is unlikely it's saying like if perhaps this should occur and what peter is saying about suffering here to these christians is that this type of suffering the suffering that comes from someone doing good is pretty rare it might not happen or it may have happened but it's not the normal thing so Peter describes what might happen, but he does describe what will happen if the suffering comes. He says, you are blessed. That's the then part of the statement. That's the process. That's the consequence. If you encounter this unlikely type of suffering, if that does occur, then you will be blessed. Which is interesting that he would say that, because when we experience suffering, usually we ask, what happened? What did I do wrong? Where did I mess up or make a mistake? What was occurring that caused my suffering to happen? Yet we're taught something different here from Peter. Sufferers, he is teaching, are blessed by God when suffering comes because of their good work. In other words, in Peter's mind, suffering that someone experiences because of the good they do is not a sign that they're outside of God's plan or that something is wrong. Instead, it's a sign that they are actually within God's plan and they are following him obediently. So Peter tells them what might happen, what will happen if that might does occur, and then he shares here how to handle it at the end of verse 14. He says, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, he tells them. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13 here. And in that context, Isaiah is talking to the people of Israel, or Judah, 
because Israel in the north has split off and Judah is just this tiny little nation of just two tribes now and there's this strong Assyria nation nearby and Israel is aligning with other nations. And Isaiah is trying to tell the nation of Judah, fear God and trust God and don't fear those other worldly peoples. And that essentially is what Peter is telling us here too. I've got three B statements for each of these three Roman numerals that you can write if you'd like to, if you're following along. And the first one is that we need to be fearful of God, is what Peter is telling us. That we need to be fearful of God. It's easy to be scared in our world of the non-Christians living around us. Last week I referenced the stories of that USPS worker that was told he needed to either quit or be fired because he refused to work on Sundays. And I referenced the, the football coach that would pray after games and was eventually fired from his position. Right? Those are, are scary for us. That affects those people's livelihoods and how they make money and their reputation and their potential for future employment and their field of expertise. Those are scary stories. But we need to remember that we fear God, not man. We trust God's sovereignty more than we trust man's words and man's works on earth. It shouldn't matter to us what man may do to us, but what matters most is what God may do through us in the situations he's placed us in, even if they are difficult. Maybe when a boss wants us to commit to working every single Sunday morning and we have to gently and kindly push back a little bit and say, I don't mind helping out in the busy season or when harvest is occurring, but I need to be with my family at church worshiping God most of the time. Those are difficult things to do, but we need courage to, to believe and know that we fear God and not man. Or maybe there are safety measures at work that are in place, but other co-workers don't follow them, so they, they cut corners and get their job done faster. But we're the person that follows those safety measures, and because of that, it makes the other co-workers look bad and brings, brings to light the fact that they're not doing their jobs correctly. And as a result, we might get persecution for it. Stanley Toussaint is a guy that I've been listening to some of his teachings in First Peter from in Texas, and he talked about when he was a kid working in a hardware store, the shipping clerk went on vacation for a week. So Stanley Toussaint, as a Christian young man, always worked hard while he was at work, and he focused on his work. He didn't do other things. He was always honest. So he did the shipping clerk's job for the week the shipping clerk was on vacation, and Stanley could do the shipping clerk's job in one hour. What took that guy eight hours a day to do, he did for an hour, and then he went and did all this other work. And when the shipping clerk got back, he was not very nice to Stan Toussaint because the boss wanted to know what the clerk was doing all day. But that's one of those examples. We fear God, not man. We focus on God's opinion of us, not what men or women think of us. Warren Wearsby says, Our enemies might hurt us, but they cannot harm us. Only we can harm ourselves if we fail to trust God. So when we're faced with those difficult circumstances, we need to, to face them and take them on, knowing that we have God on our side. So Peter gives them this information, these principles, in verses 13 and 14. 
And then he tells them about some practices to follow in verses 15 and 16. Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Verse 16 reads, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, verse 15 describes our conduct, and verse 16 describes our conscience that we should have from that conduct. And that conduct in verse 15 first focuses on the inward dedication we should have. Where he tells them, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. See, contrary to fearing others, we put Christ at the center of our lives and the center of our hearts. We look to him and follow him. We seek to glorify only him. And then that reflects also our outward action. He tells them, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now in verse 15, when he talks about defense, that comes from the word apologia, which sounds like apologetics. That's where we get our word for apologetics, which means to make a defense or to give an explanation. It's used by Paul three other times for, for times when he speaks up. He was ready to answer when people asked him questions about his faith and why he did certain things. But what are we supposed to defend in this context? The context that Peter is writing about describes the suffering that a Christian might be experiencing. Right? The hope that is in you, he describes it. See, the curious person might ask us as Christians when we're experiencing suffering, do you still believe in God? What do you think God, you know, is God observing this? They might ask us, and that is our chance our opportunity to give an explanation for our hope they might not ask about that hope but the hope we have and our faith in jesus is the source of everything we do so we automatically go back to that so that's the task we make a defense an explanation of our faith but peter also tells us the timing there at the beginning he says always being ready we should always be ready to give that explanation, always be ready to give that defense. It shouldn't be something we need to have an outline for or use Google for. We should be ready with an explanation that we can give to explain our faith in Jesus and why we have that faith. And Peter describes the tool we should use. He says, with gentleness and reverence. That's how we defend ourselves and we give a defense of our faith with gentleness and reverence. R.C. Sproul, who is a pastor in Florida for many, many years, has a commentary on 1 Peter where he says on this little phrase, he says, when we engage in debates and arguments, sometimes we allow ourselves to be overcome with the heat of the moment, and sometimes we generate more heat than light. It's a good remember. Reminder that we be gentle and, and have respect and show reverence for others 
We don't want to overcome them, or sometimes it's easy to get a little excited or enjoy debating. And that should lead how we conduct ourselves, how we give that defense should affect our conscience that we have. In verse 16, he says, And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame, Peter says. Someone once asked a little girl what conscience is, and the little girl replied, conscience, conscience is when you tell your mom what you did before your brother or sister does. Pretty good definition of conscience, right? <laughs> because a conscience is, is sometimes what we have that affects us. If we commit evil or sins right now, in the moment, later on our conscience will start to convict us with guilt or shame or regret. On the flip side, if we do good things or if we do mess up but we confess those things and try to make them right, it means we have a clear conscience and we're not affected by that conscience. And that's what Peter is trying to tell these people. That when they act righteously in the midst of suffering, when they defend their faith with gentleness and reverence, they should do so in a way that they still have a good conscience, a clear conscience conscience. And then when the people that slander them do, the shame goes on those slandering people, not us. So the second B statement here from Peter under practices and suffering is that we should be fervent to defend God. We should be fervent to defend God. Giving a defense for our faith isn't something that people that teach in a university do or only pastors do. We all have that responsibility to give a defense, to give an explanation of what we believe and why we believe it. But specifically, a defense of what? A defense of our faith in those hopeless situations or in those suffering times that we're in. One person I read this week says, A crisis creates the opportunity for witness when a believer behaves with faith and hope because the unbelievers will then sit up and they will take notice. See, it's in our times of suffering that our witness means more and affects people greater. The words we say in our suffering, they weigh more and impact people more. So when we have those times of suffering or struggles and when people ask us about our hope, we have to be ready to explain what we believe and why we believe it. There were two men that were talking and, and Joe was not a Christian, but Bill was. So Joe says to Bill, what do you believe about God? Bill says, I believe what my church believes. Joe, the unchristian, says, well, what does your church believe? Bill says, my church believes what I believe. Joe then replies, well, then what do you and your church believe? Bill says, we both believe the same thing. John MacArthur tells us, the believer must understand what he believes and why he's a Christian and then be able to articulate it humbly, thoughtfully, and biblically. We need to know what we believe and why we do certain practices. For example, why do we have 66 books in one Bible, but we don't use the Book of Mormon? That's a good thing we need to know and be able to explain. 
Why do some of us have the NASB translation or you might have the New Living or NIV? Why are those all okay, but we don't accept the New World translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses use? Because it has certain doctrinal things they have changed to, to meet their beliefs. Why do we say we only get eternal life through a person? Where is that in scripture and why do we believe that? How is our salvation based on faith and what does that relate to our works? Those are things we need to be able to articulate. See, we might not be able to argue with someone and convince them to be a Christian, but our ability to make a defense of our faith and give a good explanation is important for two reasons. One, when we can do that, it earns us respect with the person we are having a conversation with. When we can answer some of their questions, when we can give an explanation for what we believe and why, it gives us a sense of, earns us a sense of respect from that person. They might not agree with what we believe, but at least they can respect the fact that we have thought through it, and we know it, and we know why, and we understand it. And even if we understand the weaknesses of what we believe, that earns us respect too. But we also need to be able to give an explanation for a second reason. It allows us to continue the conversation with them. Unlike Joe and Bill, that conversation ended pretty quickly. But if we can at least answer some of their questions, not all of them, we can continue to have a dialogue with them. But if we have to keep telling them, I don't know, over and over and over, or say, I have to Google that, eventually they're going to quit asking. So we're fervent to defend God. So Peter gives them these practices and suffering, and then he adds one little tidbit at the very end of this section, his introductory thoughts on suffering. In verse 17, he describes potential that might happen in suffering. Peter writes in verse 17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Did you notice that if statement there? It might have popped out to you. That's another one of those fourth class conditional statements. Possible, but very unlikely. But if it does happen, right? It's, it's like Peter saying, if the will of God should will it, if that does happen, Peter is saying there that their suffering for doing good was, was not what God normally wills, even though it does happen. And maybe it did happen to some of those readers, or it will happen to them. He's reminding them to be faithful to God. That's our third B statement as we begin to wrap up our time together. We need to be faithful to God's will. It's hard to say, but suffering might be part of God's will that he has for us as Christians. I mentioned that this is a section in Peter's letter where he discusses suffering a lot, starting in chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through chapter 4, verse 19. And in that last verse, Peter wraps up this section on suffering with this. Those who suffer according to the will of God, making it seem kind of clear that sometimes it's God's will that we suffer. But these 
thoughts we're, we're reading about from Peter in chapter 3 are, are coming from Peter as a subtle transition to some further explanations that he'll give later on. He's just kind of slowly working us into this topic of suffering. But it's an important reminder for us that regardless of what God's will for us is, we follow God even if that perhaps, maybe, possibly might be suffering like Peter is saying. Right? When we commit to follow God, where we place our faith in Him, it means we go where God leads regardless of where it might be. We follow God every day regardless of what He has on our agenda. We follow God in any direction He takes us, even if we don't like it. And we follow God in every decision that He lays out for us, even if it's not the decision we might have made. It's tempting sometimes to say, I want to take a day off today, God. Can I use a sick day? I once had a boss. She called them mental health days. That wasn't an employee handbook, but she would tell me, I'm going to take a mental health day tomorrow, Christopher. We don't get any mental health days when we follow God because sometimes suffering happens, even to Christians. We know suffering happens because of bad decisions or blatant sin that some people have, that type of suffering is easier to handle. But suffering that comes even after we've done good things is difficult. And Peter's first thoughts on suffering here as he's, he's working us into this section on suffering is to teach these people and to teach us, to kindly instruct us that suffering might come even if we've done lots of good. Peter's telling them, even if you've done all the good things I've already laid out for you, you might still suffer. So if you're a Christian suffering, he's trying to tell them and tell us, don't be discouraged. Don't be troubled. Don't feel guilty that you maybe did something wrong. Don't be confused. Instead, he tells them, keep on doing that good. Maintain a good conscience and use that suffering as an opportunity to tell others about the hope that you have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin a new section here in Peter's letter, I pray you would give us strength to, to hear what it says and um, open minds and open hearts to accept it into our lives, even though it's sometimes difficult for us to, to hear things said differently than maybe our culture, but we know you and we trust you, Lord, and we look to your word for guidance, and I pray for us as a local church that these words on suffering would direct us and guide us as we experience suffering in our lives. I pray that as we discuss suffering as well, it would deepen our relationships that we have with each other, our connections that we each have as a church body, as I share maybe some of my experiences, and they get to share some of their experiences amongst each other. We pray, Lord, that you would help us and give us the right words to say when we find ourselves in suffering, that we can use it to be witnesses for you and to draw others to you in spite of all the pain and, and difficulties we're in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.